Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Dom Alessio, and this is Other Side of the Tracks. Each episode, we feature a new release and talk to the artists about the inspiration, meaning, and stories behind each song. In this episode, lead singer Dave Hosking and keyboardist Jonathan Hart from Boy and Bear take us through the recording of their fourth studio album, Suck on Light. Boy and Bear's first two albums, Moonfire and Harlequin Dream, have both reached over platinum sales in Australia and feature the hit songs Feeding Line and Southern Sun. Suck on Light marks a new chapter for the five-piece. It's the first new music they've released since their acclaimed 2015 album, Limit of Love. These new tracks are the result of a period of hard times for the group, particularly for singer Dave Hosking, who has been battling with chronic illness. Taking 2017 and 2018 off from touring to focus on getting back to good health, Hosking and the band began working on a new album that would ultimately lead them to Nashville, where writing and recording came to life. This is Suck On Light by Boy and Bear. In terms of a good place uh, or scenario to listen to the record, I think looking out the window of a car or a train or a bus, but the added difference is that it's night time. It feels like it's potentially more of like a nocturnal listen. My favourite records are kind of music I can listen to while driving. I don't know what that is, but I just love that feeling. And I think... I just, yeah, that idea of kind of going somewhere but it's at night and you've got your headphones on and you're diving into that world seems an appropriate space to be in. I was not expecting you to say that. (laughs) Well, it's not like a dark record, but I don't know. There's there's enough kind of... That's just my instinct on it, I guess, at this point. What I see So much misunderstanding. Um, when the, we first started writing, oh, I had some health issues, and so that sort of kept me out of that writing space for quite a while. So the guys actually were doing sessions without me for the first, I want to say, three or four months. Yeah, about that. Um, I was always kind of had demos and stuff, but they were definitely not complete complete songs um i think there was a real mix of both it feels like a lot on this record happened when we were all together um and at the same time too you know because john's in paris tim's in brisbane i'm um and so it would be me Simon's in killian kind of sometimes operating as a three and people off working in isolation and bringing ideas together so we were sort of lucky because initially we set up the we set up the drums and the guitars and keyboards and stuff in 
Killian's parents sort of had a room downstairs at their place that wasn't being used. And so we could just set the gear up and have it in there. And then we later moved to, to Dave's parents' place where we could set the gear up and just kind of leave it in a room where we could, we'd sort of get together for what, sort of four to six weeks at yeah. a time and just work and just go in there and go, well, we're not exactly sure what will happen, but we'll just get together and there's either existing stuff we've been working on or we'll try and come up with something new. And that was a bit of a luxury, I think, being able to just have that happening all the time. So we could just turn up and see and go, well, if we get something great, then good. And if not, then we'll just try and chip away at, you know, whatever existing stuff there is. And and I think that was kind of, that worked well for us because it, mm. it took away any of the feeling of pressure um, and we were just able to, to work as we felt like it. And if we had a tough day, we'd just go, all right, let's just, it's not happening. Let's just call it. But then you'd have some good days and we'd feel like pushing on into the night, admittedly more rare because we, we tend to be like day workers and then yeah. occasionally we do a night session. But yeah, it was, so that led, led us, it's almost like it sneaked up on us where suddenly we had like 20 songs or whatever, because we'd just been chipping away for, you know, a year, even once you'd gotten involved and, mm. and it was the pace of it meant that we were able to see the progress, but at the same time, it didn't feel sort of intense while it was happening. In a strange way, it's beautiful. If you can understand. We ha I think we had over 50, 50 to 55 demos in the By end. The end yeah. And then, but what was really interesting and what was kind of nice is that it felt like by the time we'd gotten to kind of moving into the record, there was like, everyone was pretty consistent on about 10 or 11 songs. Yeah, there was and a bit some of, fight, of them, wasn't it? Above a few yeah, outliers. Yeah. But, but that's a good sign. Like, I think when everyone's in agreement of like, okay, this song we did, you know, 12 months ago, but it's still holding up it's still lasting um but i think once you've got say 10 or 11 you start to go okay we're sort of covering these areas now this is sounding really great i don't think this song's gonna like beat it so let's scrap that and like something like rocking horse on the record for example is like i think once we hit that point of seeing what the record was going to be like it seems a nice opportunity to push that song which was a bit more of an outlier and actually go for something which is higher tempo a little bit more refreshing in terms of it just feeling different I think what's at least interesting about this record was that for a long time, we were really focused on engineering. We were we were hunting down sounds for a long time and everyone was kind of putting their ears to a whole bunch of stuff and kind of working out exactly what sounds we wanted, what drum tones, um, what overall approach. And we'd been listening for quite a long time and we had a kind of short list and we stumbled across a Ray LaMontagne record called Supernova. And there was something about at least to my ear particularly, the kind of organic instrumentation, like the all the stringed instruments, but it also had a healthy amount of compression and it had, had some um, real kind of drive to it. Um, and we worked out that Colin Dupuy, who was the um, co-producer we ended up working with in this case, uh, he engineered it. Um, so that was the journey to find him, essentially. Um and then, as it turns out, he also had a really great 
He wasn't scared of messing with sounds beyond recognition. You know, I think you often get one or the other uh, on the kind of engineering front or producer front, but to have someone that you could really hear, you could hear the person in the room, you could hear the human, but he was also not afraid to just mess with things to kind of offset that. Uh, and so that was the main reason we, we went with Colin in the end. But what was great was he kind of slotted in as like a sixth member. I know that term's probably used a lot, but... I, I think guess only when there's five people in the band, though. But yeah. yeah, that's true if you're five piece. But I think that's the beauty of the co-product, like co-producing versus a producer. Sometimes with a producer, it's easy to kind of follow the leader. Versus, I think with a co-producer, you're having to be across everything all the time, and so everyone is having to focus from whether it's arranging your strings players to your kind of your arrangements and your tempos and. And there's something about being in that space, which I think in our case brings the best out of us. And, and he had a, like, I think one of the biggest things that Colin brought was a, an approach, a workflow approach, which sounds like such a boring word to talk about workflow in a studio. But he his whole thing was, I want everything that I might want to use and that you guys might want to use. I want it all set up and I want it all ready to go at the push of a button. So I don't want us to say, let's play, for example, a keyboard part or a guitar part and spend 45 minutes trying three different microphones or trying two different keyboards out with five different delay pedals. I want it all there. And so when somebody has a sense that, hang on, I might want to try this part on a song, bang, you pull the song up and then you play the part. And so his focus was to get you playing when you felt inspired to play and that worked when we were doing our live tracking together and that worked when we were overdubbing whatever layers would happen and so he was kind of like it's my responsibility to make sure it sounds good you just play it when you feel like playing it and we'll just get it we'll get it like he wasn't sort of that he wasn't a tinkerer where he'd he'd go no no hang on let me move that mic three mil millimeters this way or we'll do look we've we've worked with guys before where that happens and that for us that can suck the life out of a performance and so he sort of set the studio up as a space that really served the kind of the creative impulse. And I feel like personally for me, that meant that there was an excitement that you basically, if you were sitting there and you didn't have any ideas, you just kind of listened and tried to be helpful and whoever was feeling something would go in and do it. And then you'd go, oh, hang on, maybe I want to try this. And so you'd kind of like, we had a whiteboard in the studio. You'd make a little note on the whiteboard that I want to try a Rhodes part in the back of this song or something. And then the Rhodes was already set up in the studio. I'd go in, I'd put my cans on and I'd just go, okay, I think this is what I want to do. And then there's a moment I go, oh, oh, okay, I feel like doing something. You jump in and you do it when you want to do it. And I think that really sort of allowed us to kind of push further yeah. um, in terms of developing the songs. And he he always had an idea of when he'd, he'd go, that sounds good, let's do it, as opposed to, no, 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 let's push it further and further. But then he was, you know, he had a modular synth set up in the studio and sometimes he'd run Dave's vocal through it, sometimes he'd run, you know, a piano through it or, or guitar. So he had a he had a sense of going, no, we're, we're drifting into the middle of the road here now. What do we, let's, let's throw something strange at it and then we'll just live with it and see what happens. And I think he was quite, that was a bit of his thing of let's live with it for a bit and then we'll, we'll know in a day or two whether that worked. And that was a cool way to do it. Mm. on fire now and there was nothing I could do there was nothing I could say In terms of track listing this time around I reckon we've tended to start at the bookends like what's going to be the first song and the last song which is all kind of instinctually driven 
And then it's about having some sense of flow or narrative with the songs that are left that feels natural. And obviously that's quite subjective, but I guess we tend to have like a relatively traditional view of, of an album, thinking of it as a side A and a side B on, oh, yeah. a, on a record. Yeah. So we were talking like side A, what do we think side A looks like? And then, oh, well, this song performs this function, so maybe we need to, you know, and, and that kind of is like this song on side B and maybe we could use something more up-tempo. And so we just did a lot of switching around and trying out and then it was really a case of living with, I think, for like a week or so, those different options and... I feel like we we that's one thing we we all pretty much agreed on in the end. It wasn't like a sort of a tussle. There was, you, you some of us might have switched something in or out, but on the whole, we got into a pretty good place just on that. I can feel it in the back of my mind. It took an enemy. Work of Art actually started, um, John and Tim were away at the time, and so it was me, Simesy and Killian, and I had been playing around with this um, sort of groove, I don't know, this like just folk feel um, on the acoustic, and yeah, we. it was when Simesy came up with this, that loop that's on there, um, and I think straight away when he put that loop to it, it just kind of gave it this whole other... Lease. Just try Originally, so, um, the loop was like a digital loop. It sounded really similar in terms of that, that same feel. Um, but once we got in the studio, we it was going to be easier to kind of record off-click completely, let the whole thing grow, and then come back later and um, record in, the yeah. percussive loop. And Colin had the kind of I think we did it on like a xylophone and like a essentially just running a whole lot of distortion through stuff and and, yeah some hi-hats on the ground I think being hit on the backbeat like there was all sorts of attempts to just recreate that thing but give it a more human sort of feel to it yeah but it really grew that I feel like that song kind of got bigger and bigger and till by the time we recorded it um and yeah I guess it's about the song is technically about um Mother Nature and appreciating those moments of appreciating the natural world, I think. Yeah, I wasn't there like with the sort of genesis of it, but I remember the guys sending it to me and the first time I listened to it and I was like, I think we've got something that we can build an album around. Like even though we ended up taking some of the songs that we'd written earlier, I feel like that was the first time that where I really sort of sat up and went, this this feels really good and it's got a great aesthetic and I feel like it's something you could kind of work with it as a not a concept but it, it suddenly felt like we were writing real tunes then it's a It's a sober sight, your knuckles bad and white 
It's the flicker on the front line from a candlelight. It's the appetite you gotta suck on life. Stand your ground. Is that the first song you suck on life? I think it was one of the really early demos. I had been playing around with like a. Originally, it was like plucked on this acoustic guitar. And it was, I don't know, I was just fascinated with that 7-8, the 7-8 feels, what's in the verses. And sometimes I find when you listen to music with a different time signature, un- more unusual time signature, the vocal can get quite stagnant because the vocal is obviously being written whilst it's work, it's feeling out the five or the seven or the, those weird, that weird feel. So I think I recorded the acoustic and then just sang and sang over it. I wanted it to feel really natural and even a little bit elaborate. Do you know what I mean? Like it, just to feel like it could come in and out whenever it wants and be really musical. So I'd been playing around with that for a long time and just having fun with that. And I had a vague idea of the chorus, but as always, I'd overcomplicated it with just too many chord changes and like... <laughs> and weird timing changes. Weird timing well. changes. And push, I was like, this, this is going to work. This is and, straight then and, yeah. and I got kind of wedded to that until once we started to arrange it, it was like, okay, we're going to have to, you know, cut the fat a little bit on this. Um but it was so weird. That was like the oldest demo and it didn't really fully come to life until we sat in the room with Colin. Um, yeah, it could have missed out that one. It was one of those where if we didn't solve the problems with it, then something else would have gone on in its place because yeah. we hadn't quite gotten it to ever sit in the chorus. No, and we when she's sitting with the song for two years, you sort of like, it starts to, you end up down a bit of a rabbit hole, you know. But he had like, we weren't really sure what to do with the outro and he just straightened the outro and we just went straight to 4-4 and... Um, yeah, he had some just really simple, clever ideas and he had enough kind of passion for the song that at that point you're like, great, let's, you know, let's follow this direction. And it wasn't until we kind of played it back in the studio, I was like, wow, this is going to work. This is going to be great. Now I'm moving to a lighter breeze. Something inside me is changing. It's strange how all the colors Well, the title, Suck On Light, I think it actually just kind of fell out of my mouth when I was trying to work out that second verse. I had been sent earlier this really great, my mum had actually sent me this thing from, they called Brain Pickings, it's like a blog online, and it was um, Leonard Cohen, this whole article on Leonard Cohen, and there was a lyric in there which was, there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. And I think that concept had found its way a little bit into my subconscious. And I just think it was an apt metaphor for that idea of like drawing out as much positivity out of a situation because for a while there, yeah, I was just, you know, I was in a really bad way. I was really sick. And that idea that you can, it is very possible to survive if you can find enough like like hope and go forward, like you can almost kind of uh, out, what's the word, outrun reality a little bit. Like if there's possibility and there's hope, you can kind of live in that space. So I guess the term suck on light just seemed like a nice visceral way of explaining that feeling. Feels like I'm on holiday. Down on action. But up against some gentle shore. I always took this for granted. Bird of Paradise was in, like, maybe that's 
Sucking Light could be the oldest song. Bird of Paradise might be the second oldest. It was definitely... No, I think that's the oldest. Is that the oldest? I remember it had a different name. It was. I think it was, was originally called, called Tornado. That's because when we played... Yeah. Where was that? You can that? tell that story. That it was in, was Rich, in Richmond, Virginia. Oh. I can remember. There was a, a tornado warning happened in the middle of our show. And we had to stop. Um, they had to turn the power off. And we had to finish our set acoustically, which was actually quite a beautiful moment. But in the sound check that night... I think Killian had just started playing the kind of little guitar motif that comes in sort of halfway through the first verse. But I never really noticed till now that I need it. I've still got that little that demo yeah. on my phone. Like, like someone put a phone down on the stage and hit record and went, oh, this kind of feels good. And we just were all playing along and we're like, and it didn't really depart. In terms of some of those first parts we played on the demo, that's like, sure, there's some accoutrements that went on at the end and things like, but the the original, like, kind of idea still held through. So the bass line and the electric, yeah. I think, that sort of were doing something really slinky and cool. Um, and, yeah, that was the immediacy, I think, of what happened in the demo that we kind of hung on to. But then the arrangement took a whole bunch of different forms, because it's one of those ones where the groove doesn't really shift going into the chorus. It, you want it to, it's supposed to feel a bit hypnotic. It's a down it's, chorus really, isn't it? Yeah. And so you're just using some chord changes and some layers to kind of give it some atmosphere and give it a sense of difference. So yeah, Telescope started off as quite a simple song on acoustic and then once we shifted the arrangement, it became a little bit more of a difficult beast to wrangle. I found a place high amongst the constellation Can I call you up? I've been meaning to tell you all about the exchange It sort of sounds effortless now, but in the studio it was trickier, wasn't it? The groove was tricky, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. I don't know what it was when we when we tracked it. That was one where we came back and we redid the guitar and we redid the the organ on it a few times because there's a lot of things making rhythms and syncopated rhythms at times. Not like crazy syncopated, but just sometimes pushing or whatever, which gives a feeling of forward momentum. But we couldn't sort of make it sit, and it felt like it should be effortless, but it was sounding very, you know, laboured in the studio, and. In the end, I think we had people clapping on certain beats and saying, well, what if you do this? And Killian was sort of trying to get the guitar. And then it was like we left it for a few days, we came back to it. And by the end, we got something that sort of we felt like this is good. And then that really, I think, came up in the mix. Yeah. Because we we got Tom Elmhurst to mix a few of the tracks and he's a guy whose name we've been aware of for a few years and we nearly sort of worked with him on previous record and it didn't happen and then... He he sort of brought, like, it always felt good, but he really brought that to life. He gave that song, like, we were saying that when you listen to his mix, the song sounds faster than when you listen to the kind of the desk mix we had. And obviously nothing's changed in the tempo, but he's just, what he managed to pull out in there really drives that song along. And it needs that because it's kind of, it's got a... I guess a vocal chorus where it's just singing the melody as opposed to it's not like this, the, the story doesn't carry through the chorus. The, the momentum of the song really is that rhythm thing, I think, which makes it work. Yeah.
think that imagery of the telescope, that was weird. That was one of the first lines that kind of happened. And I think there's a lyric where it says, I saw Simon and Peter and John on the hill. Through the telescope, I saw Simon and Peter and John on the hill. And they, they're my kind of three best mates. And I think at this point of the writing, it felt as though there had been this sort of outer space vibe, which had been creeping into the story, which I had embellished a bit more and I was really liking. And I think part of um, being unwell was this f- overwhelming feeling of isolation and disconnection. And so it seemed a lighter way of kind of that idea of watching my friends from afar. Dryers, I think. Did Killian have an acoustic thing? Yeah, he so, wrote the acoustic part. Yeah, so Killian rarely ever gets on an acoustic guitar, but he had this sort of idea. And I remember it was quite annoying because he hadn't tuned his guitar when he <laughs> he wrote the idea, which kind of became the backbone of the demo. So we had this sort of half, like, between steps kind of tuned guitar, but it sounded really cool. And you'd kind of just gone in and done this vocal over it. I think this was another one that kind of pieced together over a while. and it, But it was just like a, basically an acoustic guitar in your voice and maybe there was like an idea of having some sort of tribal percussion come in. But it took on a quite a different life in the studio. Yeah. Because I think that, I could be wrong here and maybe you'll remember correctly, but this was definitely one of those ones where we either tried recording the guitar like to tape pitched up a step like on the guitar so that then we could slow the tape down and give a different texture to the um to the guitar and maybe it was your voice on this one or if it, yeah so, yeah so there's three vocal takes yeah. on it one i had to sing higher but slower another one I had to sing lower but faster and the whole idea was that colin could either speed up the tape or slow down the tape and you start to get really interesting tones vocal tones and guitar tones yeah uh, and, and then the it, rest of us would play to that once it had been pitched back to pitch so that maybe the drums could have been there was some weird stuff because no the drums i think ended up going on at normal time yeah but the combination of putting all those things together was going to be quite a palette yeah it's got it it's I, i've it's one of my favorites on the record it's got this really great it's just got an atmosphere to it, I think, that came from all those unique sounds that, you know, you've got to give Colin credit for because he sort of came up with those ideas. He really sonically pushed that song. Get I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
so the song Long Long Way, I guess started off a bit more traditionally really. I was playing the acoustic uh, and came up with some changes and a melody that just felt really good to me. Once we started thinking about strings, Symesy had a vision for strings in this song. And um, I think it's really interesting because I think we had trouble as well with the solo. It's just feeling not as exciting as we wanted. And we Killian tried a whole bunch of different guitars and amps on multiple days. And yeah. it just, we just couldn't quite get it there. And we ended up kind of like, Symesy had the strings um, follow his, his bass ba- line, but kind of octaves up. And... I think it's kind of interesting because that solo section, instead of, say, the guitar being right at the front in the mix and the strings further back, they, they kind of are about both at the same spot. So your, your ear is following one melody and it's getting passed to another melody. I think... It's an interesting example of problem solving on the fly to create something which feels really good um, that wasn't necessarily how it was intended. But to my ear, that ended up feeling... That section just feels good, which is all you want, you know? It was pretty... That was one of the things where we didn't all feel the same at the time and that didn't... We didn't even realise that really till the mix, I think, because it was in the mix, Mm. like, there was you know, a few versions floating around, one with the strings down, one with the strings up, and then trying to find the right spot for those things to interact. Because like Dave said, your ears kind of being passed from one thing to another. And I think it's a very fine line where that can go, where there's just a lot of information at once that you can't (laughs) really make sense of. So there's like, we do our thing, but there's an art to the guys who sit in that mix room and go, you know, let's try and find a space for all these bits and try and find a way in which they actually make sense to the story of the song. And I think there was a bit of trickery that went in there, which really, um, I think, brought that song home. In terms of strings and, I guess the way it works with our songs most of the time there's some sort of melody that's already being played by something else there's been a couple of occasions where like because Simes has got a bit of a background in putting arrangements together he'll kind of go we've got strings in why don't we try them in this song and then sometimes they'll we'll try and come up with a part but like a lot of the time for example there's a song Vesuvius on the record and that was like a melody that Dave had been singing that I'd been kind of playing and we developed and then we thought we'd been playing it on a Mellotron why don't we we've got strings in let's just get them in to play it and then we can decide which works better and I think but oftentimes there's you know in in past records as well there's already been something melodic or a space where we could hear it and then it's about developing it and because none of the like the other four of us aren't trained in you know, any arrangement sort of thing, whereas that's a, that's a real skill that Simes he can bring where he can kind of go. He, conduct, he conducted. He conducted it, yeah, yeah, in the studio. And so, and then it's nice because he's in there kind of in the conducting world and we can, can sit in the control room and be like, It's sort of funny watching this. him do his yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, it's hilarious. It? And then um, it means you're working with these great players who can go, we sort of go, that's not quite working. Because oftentimes you've got a vision, but then it's a different thing. 
when you hear it back and you go, oh, that sounds really rich and thick or too lush now, and we're trying to make it work in essentially a pop song to then sort of find a way to finesse. And he's great with that. And Colin was really experienced with that too, to, to try and find a way to make those worlds meet where it doesn't sound like we've just sort of suddenly we've got strings in there yeah. and it, and it's a surprise. So yeah, it's been a, it's been evolving for us though, but I feel like we've gotten more comfortable with that sort of thing in, mm. in this last record. Yeah. And that texture has become just part of the yeah. sound that we like. I think that, that again, that kind of classic pop thing, whether it's ELO or like just that, those string melodies, as long as it's not from the, you know, start to finish of a record, they, they bring something nice to at least my ear. I yeah, like them. Yeah. Totally. ended up putting off my head at song seven because it just seemed like a really it was from that vision of like turning over the record and going you know particularly after you, you've had dry eyes you've had long long way they're kind of a little bit more um maybe not demanding but a bit darker and a little bit heavier that you kind of like straight away you're in a different world and it, it's almost like a palate cleanser so that's why we why we put it at seven it uh, felt good though everyone was on that i think like that was one of those ones where we were like you could close your eyes and imagine picking up a record and turning it over and putting the stylus back down. And that had a good, like a really positive association, I think, which was nice. And, and it's weird because obviously like only such a small percentage of people yeah. actually listen to vinyl, but it helps you simplify the track totally. listing and it helps you when you've got, it's like, how do you want the record to flow? I think that A, B, A side, B side thing just, it does, it simplifies things and it works. And I think there was something in like, let's start again now, song seven, how are we going to play the back end of the record out? I was I think that song, when we started writing it, it was a reference to um, 2014. I, for some reason, how that came through, I don't know. But it's interesting when I started to get quite ill, it was affecting my brain and I did feel a bit unhinged and I felt like I was just losing myself, you know, and in that trying to kind of just push through and, and probably drinking too much and partying too much. And like, I've come to see it as like, I never really had a chance. Like when that, and maybe oh, I don't like, I'm quoting my own lyrics here. Is that bad form? But I no, think no, the no. lyric, this is the time to quote your own lyrics, isn't it? Um, but that line of, um, the, but the chemistry dictates the terms. Dictates terms. I, I think that's, I could have only written that song now in hindsight of kind of going like yeah, I tried everything, but I was, I was, there was no chance I was ever going to feel normal because what was going on in my brain was, um, yeah, off balance. It was In pre-production, Colin was like, no, nah, he was really into this song. And he was referencing like J.J. Kale and another band, Space Cowboy, Space... Stuff that kind of had the tops rolled off. Yeah. Where it was just a really warm sort of... 
enveloping kind of cool sound. It needed to feel kind of stonery, kind of laid back, kind of um, just warm and punchy. And he took off all the symbols of Tim's drums. He's like, don't hit these. Like, because he just, he wanted that, that tone. And I think he brought or an element of kind of coolness, I think, to that song. And I still love um, Killian came up with that solo in the studio, I think, and then he doubled it with the fuzz guitar as well. Mm. I remember Colin being like, I don't know about the fuzz guitar, and Killian plugged in and Colin was like, that sounds great. So the song Hold Your Nerve ended up being uh, the first single. I mean, the single conversation was always a tricky one. Uh, it did. It always had a sense of immediacy to it. Um, it had, I mean, to put it frankly, it was kind of more radio radio friendly than a lot of the other, other tracks. I think it has a really great energy to it, an uplifting feel. It was one of the last songs um, we finished lyrically. And I think at that point, we've sort of, it felt like we we're close to the finish line. And I think that, that essence comes through in the song as well. really excited to record it and he had a he had a he had a vision for how to get the drums to sound a particular way because we were in quite a like a large studio there was an old church and they had microphones up on the roof like in the kind of where the beams were in the roof and he had this sort of idea of pulsating drums by using these room mics at the top um, of the of the building that would be really compressed and sound a particular way and I didn't really know what he was talking about and he was explaining it I was like it sounds good yeah, everyone's just saying it sounds good by that point but then when he when he when we listened back we we're like oh there's a lot of life to that and it it kind of brought it home at the end really where I remember you were sitting out in the corridor like outside of the control room with a pen and paper and sort of like trying to nut the last lyrics out or going oh, I don't know I'm not sure and then it was one of those things where you just push at the end because you had time to do it. Yeah. And then when, you know, um, when our sort of labels heard it and our management, they were really excited about it. I think most of us always heard it as having that potential, but it was one of those songs where because it had been in the question mark pile, sometimes it's hard mentally to move that into the other thing. But I'm yeah. glad we did. So Vesuvius was one of my least favourite of the demos that we had rolling around. It just, it, one of the things was I wasn't there for the initial demo coming together and the boys sent it to me and I was kind of like, whatever, like did nothing for me at the time <laughs> to be frank about it. But everyone was really excited about it. So it was that occasional situation that happens in a band where four people are saying that this is the best thing since sliced bread and you're like, I just don't hear it. I don't know what's going on. And, but we stuck with it and 
it it always had a like a a kind of a hypnotic thing to it because the bass thing kind of comes in at the top and basically stays through the whole song, which is unusual. Like, and it's, there's a lot of information I guess from it, and it kind of continues. But there was, in spite of my reservations about it, you could just feel that it had something to it. There was an excitement around it. Check out some time ago. Got a little uneasy To a quiet but vibrant place for myself When we got to the studio, Colin was really excited about it and I think where it really clicked for me is when you started seeing that sort of string melody at the start and I think you referenced like a Jonathan Wilson track or something mm. and I listened to that and I was like, oh, this makes sense now. And not that it's about me, but by the time we get to the studio, you want to be feeling it when you're in there recording it. And and it had a, like, that was, that was a, we recorded the whole front of that just kind of free without any sort of, um, any yeah. click or any rhythm assistance. But then we, we had a, a vision or Colin had a vision, which we've now taken on as a, sort of as our own to make the back feel really like, um, I think the word he used was motoric. I thought it was Simes he came up with that. No, I think it was Colin. But okay. anyway, it could it could have been Simes. Mm. Someone came up with the idea that the back should feel different to the front and it would be this really long outro and we would somehow piece the two bits together, which was the hard part actually to join kind of the the more instrumental outro part of the song to the the kind of the bit that has the lyrical stuff. The album Suck On Light is out now. For more, head to boyandbear.com. Other Side of the Tracks is produced in Sydney, Australia by U Music Media House, a subsidiary of Universal Music Australia. This episode was recorded and edited by the team at Forbes Street Studios in Woolloomooloo. For more, head to othersideofthetrackspod.com.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.